This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Canadians could soon have the right to be forgotten. It's a matter being considered by the Federal Court of Canada this year at the request of the Privacy Commissioner. The right to be forgotten would allow people to request search engines remove old or potentially embarrassing links about them. Several years ago, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada filed a reference with the federal court in a case that was billed as settling the right-to-be-forgotten privacy issue. That may have overstated matters, but the case did address a far more basic question. In the words of the reference, quote, does Google, in the operation of its search engine service, collect, use, or disclose personal information in the course of commercial activities within the meaning of paragraph 4.1a of PIPIDA, when it indexes web pages and presents search results in response to searches of an individual's name. Earlier this month, the federal court released its decision, concluding that it does. Mark Phillips is a Montreal-based lawyer practicing primarily in the areas of privacy, access to information, civil litigation, and administrative law in both Quebec and Ontario. His client, whose identity remains confidential under order of the court, filed the complaint that ultimately led to the federal court decision. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the case, where the right to be forgotten stands under Canadian law, and what might come next. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Michael. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, you found yourself at the center of a leading Canadian case on the right to be forgotten and its potential application under Canadian law. Now, before we get to the specifics uh, of that case and what the court had to say, why don't we start a little bit with the basics of for those that are unfamiliar with the right to be forgotten? Can you, you walk through a little bit the principle and how it's developed, particularly, of course, coming out of Europe? So the, the standard answer, answer you'll hear on, to that question is basically that the European Court of Justice uh, invented the right, of, right to be forgotten in a 2014 case called Google Spain. Uh, and basically its scope has been incrementally clarified since, which is, which is not completely wrong, but there was, there was actually a lively period of civil society mobilizing to grapple with the issue starting back around 2007. So for about the seven years preceding the case, uh, that gave rise to Google Spain, um, especially in Spain and France, but also to some extent in other countries like Italy and Germany. Uh, the organizing included it included groups like children's rights organizations, uh, innocence project type organizations, and others who who understood that their constituencies could suffer injustice if certain prejudicial personal information were to follow them around online permanently. Um, the national data protection authorities, which are a bit like a bit analogous to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner here, were engaged in that discussion. And uh, one might even be surprised to hear that industry juggernauts like Microsoft, Facebook, and even Google joined these other organizations at the table to draft a French charter of the right to be forgotten. Uh, although when the final uh, version of that document came out in 2010, Google and Facebook ultimately refused to sign it. So. It was that kind of precursor activity that led to the Google Spain case in 2014, which was a watershed moment. Uh, the European Court of Justice was called on in that case to clarify basically how longstanding data protection rights uh, would apply or could apply to Google search engine. So out of those existing legal rights, so for example, there's a right to rectification, 
the right to withdraw consent to the processing of one's personal data. Uh, similar things actually to what we see in some of the Canadian statutes. The court held that Google's search engine was subject to the data, to data protection law and that individuals have a right to request and at least in some cases to have specific search engine results not appear for searches of the person's name. Um, in the aftermath of the Google Spain decision, there was even more lively debate about its result that really continued to cut across the standard battle lines that we use, that at least I'm usually used to seeing in privacy debates. So normally I expect to see often consumer and privacy advocates on one side uh, and advocates of greater basically profitability for businesses on the other. Um, but in the first years after Google Spain, I think we saw more strange bedfellows uh, and my feeling, personal feeling at the time is that many advocates who are rightly vigilant about threats to free and open internet were misled into misclassifying the Google Spain case uh, as being among the, those threats. And I think superficially it might look like it might replicate some of the types of problems that we could see in other areas, for example, like with uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the United States or the problematic Ecostec decision of the Supreme Court of Canada, that both of which I think you've talked about in your podcast before. Um, but we've been living with the legacy of Google Spain now for seven years, and uh, as contemporary privacy issues become better understood, I think a lot of these people have come around to seeing that um, it's the real life adverse impacts on the accessibility of information is, is very marginal, particularly when weighed against uh, the devastating impact for many people of having their most sensitive information uh, accessible within a few keystrokes to anyone in their life. Um, so a few of the concerns I, I actually think were potentially introduced, um, you know, by, by industry either to promote their interest or for whatever reasons. So one thing that we commonly heard, and in fact, are still hearing an article in La Presse that came out just after the recent federal court decision repeated it again, uh, is that a shortcoming of the Google Spain remedy is that it allows uh, web pages to be de-indexed from Google. So there's no longer any way to find the web page through a search engine anymore at all. Uh, and it's a, I feel it's important to specify that that's, that's not true because it's a really common misconception. Uh, so the way it works, as I mentioned before, maybe quickly, is that um, when the remedy is granted, which it isn't always, uh, it's essentially only for searches of a person's name that the specified URLs will no longer appear in the search results. And they, they continue to appear for all kinds of other search terms that might bring up the same documents. So they're, they're, not, they're not disappeared kind of in that way that uh, one might have the fear of. And in fact, that's th that more um, heavy handed way is the way it worked and delisting worked in cases like Equistec that were outside of the privacy context. Uh, another concern uh, that was raised at the time was that uh, politicians or public figures would be able to use Google Spain to sanitize or cover up their histories of misdeeds and, or even keep committing them. Um, but I think it's important to remember that the right to be forgotten, or if we want to call it that, isn't an automatic right. Uh, so you can make a delisting request, but then it's held up against uh, multiple legal criteria. And the first criterion in Europe that you'll find, it more or less says that if you're a public figure, you don't get the right to delisting. Uh, and this has been quite effective at, at ensuring this concern doesn't uh, materialize. And kind of the last thing I think I wanna say about this um, is that there's also a lot of currency, I think around that time, back around 2014, around this notion that once a piece of personal information is publicly accessible, uh, say online, that's kind of it. You have no control over it and it's at best foolish and maybe at worst harmful to even pretend you can impose any restrictions on the use uh, and further dissemination of it. Um, 
Uh, I think until pretty recently, a lot of people took this for granted and it was a real part of the early criticism of the Google Spain case. But I think there's finally starting to be a, an understanding of just how, how threadbore that notion is, at least when it's applied categorically, especially through a number of controversies since then that I think you've analyzed, whether it's you know, Clearview AI or whether it's Cambridge Analytica, uh, that has really, these situations have really given people pause to say, you know, maybe we don't wanna live in a world where the rules are that every piece of personal information that's accessible online can be used for any purpose in any way without restriction. So I think I've deviated a bit, but to get back from your initial question, um, although there's been a number of re refinements and clarifications to Google Spain in Europe, and there's been discussions about it around the world, uh, I, I imagine a number of people at the time would be surprised that, uh, a number of people who were, had been concerned about it back in 2014 would be surprised at kind of how stable and non-controversial it quickly became. Okay, that's a that's a really interesting and, and comprehensive look at the at how it's unfolded in Europe as a principle and and what we've seen over the the last number of years. I think it's important to emphasize as well, and in addition to some of the limitations from a search perspective, that we're dealing specifically, of course, in the context of de-indexing, removal of the index from a search index, not removal of the content from the web itself, uh, and then also. Of course, the fact that uh, this is lawful content. I mean, it's nobody says it's inaccurate. It's just causing some kind of harms. You know, is that correct? I wouldn't disagree with maybe the statement, but I think the framing of this this notion of lawful content um, is a bit un, is a bit unclear to me. I mean, we have some cases where, for example, say 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 content is available um, behind a paywall, for example, for copyright reasons online. That I think is lawful content. It's not unlawful for it to be there, but it would be inappropriate probably for certain uses of it to be made by certain people. So there's a sense, yes, that there's no lawful in the sense that there's no order, no court order that exists that it should be, you know, scrubbed from, uh, you know, the, the face of the earth. But I think the, I think that personally, I actually think the the notion of lawful content uh, isn't that helpful here. But but I'm not sure if that answer is kind of what you're getting at. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess I just wanted to. To emphasize that you know where we're dealing with unlawful content, obviously we've had, you know, we have courts that will sometimes call for the removal of that content, the original content. Uh, we've had governments, of course, increasingly focus on uh, potential takedowns. Here we're talking about content that wouldn't be taken down, wouldn't be taken down per se, but uh, there's certainly an attempt to try to make it a bit more obscure and more difficult to find, given that it's accurate but potentially harmful. Exactly. And I think getting back to your kind of initial com comment, that was, that's an important point that I should have raised too, that the, the underlying um, the underlying web pages aren't deleted uh, when this remedy is exercised either. I kind of focused on the fact that they're even still accessible on the search engine, but that's true. So yeah, there's no, there's no uh, legal impediment to them continuing to be available in that sense. Okay, that's good. No, it's it's I think it's it is definitely useful to to establish sort of a, a common understanding or framework for for thinking about some of these issues. So that that was a really good look at, at what's taken place in Europe up until this case. What had taken place uh, in Canada when it came to this issue? So as far as directly addressing the issue, my my sense is that it's basically uncharted, and even in this case, Associate Chief Justice Gangi was quite explicit in her reasons that the reference didn't analyze or weigh in on uh, the delisting remedy that we're requesting at all, uh, and there were only and the court was only resolving a couple of preliminary issues regarding uh, whether Google search engine is even within the scope of application of uh, the relevant Canadian data protection law, which is PEDA, of course, the uh, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. 
which is not to say that you can't find precedents in analogous situations in the case law if you look. Uh, and you'll even actually find the phrase right to be forgotten in a few old decisions, but it's, it's not really being used in the internet context that we'd expect for the most, the most part. But I think the one, the one precedent that stands out more in this respect is uh, an earlier federal court case called globe24h.com uh, globe or globe24h from the start of 2017. Um, I, think it, I think it bears pretty directly. So if you think we have time for it, I'd love to go over what happened in that case because it's, it's also, I think, a fun one to look at. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. No, it's a case, a case I know well, given that I was uh, sitting on the Canley board in and around some of the same time that the case was <laughs> taking place. Go ahead. So, so it came out of an OP, OPC complaint or uh, an Office of the uh, Privacy Commissioner uh, complaint against uh, basically a guy in Romania who would use software to surreptitiously download most of the Canadian legal decisions, as I understand it from, you know, I just mentioned the popular free site Canley. He was eventually detected by Canley and blocked from getting the rest. He ended up republishing the decisions on his own website. Uh, only on this site, unlike Canley, uh, he configured it so that Google would index all of those old decisions. So now suddenly when Canadians Googled their names or the name of someone they knew, they would discover that like the person's old divorce proceedings are coming up in the search results or old criminal cases involving the person are coming up and people were immediately unhappy. Um, but it turns out that the website offered both the disease and the cure, right? It was happy to respond to privacy related requests from Canadians to anonymize them. There was just a processing fee involved you had to pay. So, so it's basically this extortion site based on personal information. Uh, although the site also generated revenue by hosting advertisements on the site. So, so eventually when the case made it, went before the federal court and an order was sought to take the site down, uh, it raised, I, I think a whole pile of novel legal issues related to, to Pepita. Um, which again is the federal private sector data protection law. So first the court had to ask, you know, does Pepita have any legal force outside of Canada? Second is, is the website exempt from Pepita because uh, personal information is used exclusively for journalistic, artistic, or literary purposes. Uh, and third is the website exempt because the personal information isn't being used or processed in the course of commercial activities. Uh, I'm sure the facts didn't make it any harder for the court to come to the conclusion that yes, Pepita could apply in Romania and no, the website wasn't exempt uh, and the court ordered that the pages be taken down. So in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the legal issues were somewhat similar. So for example, you know, Google, the defendant in this, this reference that I was involved in are headquartered outside of Canada. So now that question was resolved. Uh, these other issues I just mentioned came up too, but it really wasn't explicitly a case about delisting, but there, there was a lot of, there were striking similarities that a lot of people, including yourself at the time, Michael noted. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely a case that got a lot of attention, uh, as I think will this case. And so why don't, why don't we shift gears to talk a bit about that case? Now, as you know, the ironies of these right to be forgotten cases, is of course, that the complainant risks being identified by bringing forward the case, the exact thing in some ways that they're trying to avoid. So what can you tell us uh, about the facts of the case while, of course, also ensuring that your client isn't identified? Yeah, so one of the things that that I, I, I'm saddened about a bit is because I think on the level of being able to communicate, you know, to the public and, and the profession why this remedy, remedy is so important, um, the situation that my client's been facing for many years now really illustrates the need vividly. But... Um, the, the federal court did order a ban on disseminating any information that could identify my client for, for good reason. Uh, that's maybe obvious. And, and unfortunately, most of the facts that illustrate the client situation, I feel could likely be combined with other facts to lead to identification. So there's, I think there's only a few things I can say, um, but some of them 
uh, are, I mean, and of course, I'm saying this without being able to have facts about it on the public record. So someone could always come along and disagree. But, for, but from my perspective, you'd be really hard pressed to argue that my client did anything wrong that could be said to make it the client's fault that they ended up with the search, the, the Google search profile that they ended up having. Uh, but now that search profile does cast a very dark shadow all over all aspects of the client's life. So in, including relationships with coworkers, friends, anytime the client meets new people, the client's in fear about them discovering the search profile. Uh, there's a, at least in one case, the client was physically assaulted due to the assaulter having read the search engine results. Um, it's also allowed prospective landlords, employers, or others to effectively sidestep the human rights law that's enforced by allowing them to effortlessly learn facts about the client that amount to prohibited grounds of discrimination uh, under you know, uh, relevant human rights law that they don't have any business knowing. And then they can essentially surreptitiously use those facts to discriminate against the client in rental hiring and other decisions. So um, essentially the, the really difficult uh, situation the client's in, in the wake of the federal court's decision in Globe 24H, uh, ended up leading me to file the complaint with the privacy commissioner on the client's behalf in June of 2017. Um, and a little over a year later, the privacy commissioner decided to exercise this power it has under the Federal Courts Act uh, my understanding was that it was the first time in its history the OPC opted to use this power to, re to refer two of the preliminary legal questions to the federal court uh, in a reference proceeding. Okay. Uh, so, so, you know, you've identified obviously what those, what the kind of harms that existed using the complaints mechanism under PEPITA to try to address them fall and then leading, of course, to the complaint and the commissioner, interestingly, uh, moving towards the using this reference as a, as a mechanism to move the case forward or to better understand where can Canadian law stands. Uh, why don't we talk about both of the issues that that were uh, at stake or that were discussed uh, as part of the reference? First one uh, was whether or not Google's activities fall within the scope of commercial activities under Pepita. Google, of course, argued that it didn't, focusing specifically on the search results aspect of its operations. It wasn't saying that they don't do anything commercial. Obviously, they do, but they were saying that the, the search engine results aspects of it kind of fell outside of there. How did the, how did the court work through that issue? Yeah, so I referenced it before, but just to make sure it's clear why this is an issue at all, uh, the provision in Pepita that sets out its material scope limits it to uh, you know, regulating processing of personal information in the course of commercial activities. So anything outside of the course of commercial activities wouldn't be covered. So basically in responding to our complaint, Google latched onto that and said, hey, we're not even subject to Pepita because our search engine is not a commercial activity. So the OPC doesn't even have jurisdiction to examine this complaint. Um, and when we, when we ultimately made it before the federal court, the court didn't have too much trouble dismissing this argument, I don't think. Um, so it noted that it focused on one of Google's main arguments as to why the search engine was ostensibly not engaged in commercial activity, which was that there was no evidence in the file, which, which we acknowledged to show that any advertisement appeared on a results page for a search of my client's name specifically. So hence Google says, uh, there's no money being made, uh, no commercial activity. Um, I'm not sure if the court noted this specifically, but, but the, the reference question, I mean, they would have repeated the, the reference questions, which weren't specific to my client, were, were more broadly uh, related to the search engine, especially in the context of searches of people's names as a whole. Uh, and so what the court really took note of was the fact that, the, you know, the well, fairly well-known fact, facts, I think, that Google's market dominance in search specifically has made it one of the most profitable corporations in the world, uh, generating many billions in ad revenue in that process. 
The court noted that Google itself promotes its advertising business by highlighting the popularity of its search engine, as well as its ability to target ads to users based on personal information that's stockpiled about those users. So a minute ago, you mentioned that um, it's only looking at the search results, but in, in a sense, I read the decision as also being about this information on the searcher side that, that information is being compiled about them too. And there's potentially questions about whether, you know, Pepita is now more clearly applicable to those people too, whether they have the rights uh, with respect to the search engine uh, that, that wouldn't be related to a delisting request. But, but in any case, that's a bit off topic. So, um, or at least speculative. So, so to get back to the court's reasons, basically, the court held that just because some searches don't include ads clearly doesn't mean there's no commercial activity going on here. It can't be compartmentalized in that way. Um, there was another, another argument Google put forward that basically no one pays anything to do a Google search. So then again, ostensibly, there's no commercial activity. Uh, and in that case, the court essentially noted that uh, even if Google provides free services to the content providers and the user of the search engine, it still has a flagrant commercial interest in connecting uh, these two players. That's a very close paraphrase. Um, and then in concluding on this issue, Associate Chief Justice Gagne um, stated basically that the overall takeaway was that the different components of search shouldn't be looked at in isolation and every component of Google's business model here is a commercial activity for the purpose of Pepita. Uh, and I also found it interesting that she notes here that Google has no commercial interest in delisting unless it's forced to do so. Uh, and this was the only point delisting uh, is explicitly referenced in the decision, um, which, which jumped out at me a bit too. Yeah, no, that is an interesting aspect. I mean, some of those questions, some of the similar kinds of questions came up, I think a little bit in the Equistech case as well, where they talked about some of Google's motivations and the impact that that these kinds of orders would actually have on the on the company. And of course, in that case, the Supreme Court wasn't particularly sympathetic to Google's arguments either. Um, the second issue that gets raised, and so the, the issue on the commercial side, I don't think would take a lot of people by by surprise. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there is an argument to say that you know there's an attempt to try to hive that off, but I think the the court does look more holistically at Google's operations, recognizing some of the the linkages that exist between its advertising business and its search business, and the role that data plays really across those different services. The the second issue though was. Google's attempt to raise one of the exceptions that exist within Pipita, specifically the journalistic exception under the Act. Uh, how did the court go through uh, that analysis? Yeah, and so it's a, it's a different issue, but there there were a lot of I thought a lot of similarities in the two. So so again, the reason that we ended up talking about this uh, is this another specific provision in Pipita, which isn't about its material scope, but. It, instead, it's an exception that says that Pepita doesn't apply at all to organizations processing personal information for journalistic, artistic, or literary purposes and for no other purposes. And so again, Google tried to argue that its search engine was uh, fundamentally journalistic or literary in nature. And so again, it, it's not subject to Pepita. And once again, uh, the court rejected Google's argument and, and held again that Google was trying to put forward what it called a microscopic look at the situation, basically isolating a small part of the overall service. Uh, so to put that into a bit more of a um, of a practical uh, example or analysis, Google pointed out to the fact that, again that specific the specific web pages that my OPC complaint asked to have delisted were all news articles. Uh, but there, again, the reference asks about the operation of Google's search engine more broadly than with respect to just my client. Uh, and the court ended up noting that even looking at only at searches of people's names, the results will include many pages that are not going to be news articles. Uh, 
the court said this information is wide and varied. It's not limited to media content, and it can lead to a detailed portrait of an individual, which, which I thought was uh, an appropriate um, kind of analysis of the situation. Um, and then as far as Google search, whether Google search engine itself ha has an exclusively journalistic purpose, the court applied the test that uh, I pre was previously set out in the Globe 24H case we were discussing a bit before. Uh, I, may, I won't go into all the steps. It's a three-step test, uh, unless you'd find it interesting. Uh, but essentially, I think the overall, the overall focus the court put in answering all those steps was to say that Google, unlike uh, you know, an individual journalist or even a media entity as a whole, doesn't have any control over the content of the documents that it's indexing. So it really drew, drew a sharp distinction uh, from there. And then finally, there was uh, an argument from Google that it was an intermediary uh, and a publisher. Uh, and on that basis, it should be exempt basically from Pepita. Uh, and the court held that wasn't relevant because basically the wording of intermediary and publisher isn't included anywhere in the, in the statute, isn't part of the analysis. Yeah. So th that's helpful. Th there, were, there were a couple of interveners in this case. One was SIPIC. Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, which I think largely aligned with some of the same kinds of arguments that uh, you were making and that the that the OPC was making as well. The CBC was involved as well, specifically on this latter issue, on the journalism issue. Uh, what did they argue? Yeah, so initially there was there was also a large media coalition, including essentially all of the biggest corporate players like the Globe, the Star, the National Post, et cetera, who had been seeking intervener status, although they, they ended up bowing out at an earlier stage and so only CBC stayed around. Uh, and essentially the CBC's take on it was that where Pepita refers to journalistic purposes, and again, take this with a grain of salt, I'm, I'm kind of opposing counsel in a way to CBC here, so feel free to feel welcome to read their materials rather than listen to my take, but I'll, I'll try to give a fair take. Um, so essentially, essentially where Pepita refers to journalistic purposes, see the CBC says, this should be read as a, a more blanket exclusion against any application of Pepita to journalistic material, even if it's the hand of non-journalist third parties and wouldn't otherwise be seen as being used for journalistic purposes. Uh, and so CBC ended up also proposing a new test to supplant the one set out in Globe 24H that, that would, I think, basically reflect the, that position. Uh, and then they also raised some charter free expression concerns um, in the course of their arguments too. Uh, and I, with respect to those positions, the court held that CBC and its proposed test is, are essentially looking at whether news media have a journalistic purpose when they create and disseminate material. Whereas the question before the court was really whether Google has a journalistic purpose. So essentially CBC submissions were, were more relevant to that other question that wasn't before the court. court. And then as far as the charter argument, because the reference wasn't a charter application or there's no charter application that was part of the reference uh, and it was only uh, basically questions of how to interpret the statute, uh, the, the court ended up essentially saying that the Supreme Court's established that the charter can only be used to resolve a genuine ambiguity in, in, in interpreting the statute and the court found there was none here. So which isn't to say that there won't be, um, um, you know, charter arguments that are will be appearing before we see any kind of a right to, to delisting affirmed by the courts, but but for at least the purpose of the reference, it, it wasn't felt to be relevant here. Yeah, okay. Now that's a that's a perfect segue really to where I wanted to sort of bring this together, which is, you know, we've now got the federal court dismissing Google's arguments that that obviously sought to exclude search results from the scope of uh, Pepita. Uh, and while that I think is useful in terms of providing greater certainty on this right to be forgotten issue in the in the context of Canadian law. It obviously 
doesn't address many other issues as the court itself uh, notes. So it doesn't address remaining questions such as the outcome of the complaint itself, doesn't address the power of the commissioner to recommend de-indexing, nor, as, as you just suggested, the constitutionality of FAPITA. So, so why don't we start with a sort of basic question. What comes next in, in your view? We've got certainty on, on some aspects of this, but there is a lot that remains in many ways unanswered given where Canadian law currently sits. Yeah, so in the normal course, if this decision were to stand, what, what I would expect is that, as the judge said, the, um, the complaint will essentially be sent back to the Privacy Commissioner, who will have to resolve um, essentially all of the other issues. So basically, you know, we are arguing that uh, there is a right to privacy, search engine privacy delisting that is already part of PIPEDA, that's essentially... Um, uh, essentially flows from the, the rights that are in there. So they'll have to decide whether whether that's true. And then they'll also have to, to do some kind of balancing exercise with uh, with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which we've made arguments about in our complaint to show how we think it's, uh, what we think basically there is an infringement of free expression here, but that it's quite easily justified uh, by the first article of the Charter. Uh, and once that, however, uh, you know, as you as I'm sure you know, once that's resolved, even if the Privacy Commissioner is to, to decide in our favor, it only has recommendation powers. So most likely I would expect that we'll find ourselves back before federal court again, trying to get uh, some kind of more binding order. And then to add to that, of course, maybe I should have stated this first, but it's always, or at least it's still quite possible that Google could could appeal this existing reference to uh, the federal court of appeal and try to make further arguments. We don't know yet whether that'll happen, but presumably I would expect that to delay um, to delay the processing of the underlying complaint, although um, it's hard to necessarily say. Definitely from the perspective of, of my client, the, this decision, or we're sitting now about, I think, four years after the complaint initially being filed. And so the perspective, the possibility of, you know, I'm not sure if this would go to the Supreme Court, but the possibility at least of going to the Supreme Court twice before getting a final an answer makes it look like a bit of a slog, but we're, we're going to do what we can to get there. Yeah, no, it sounds like this is the sort of thing that can play out really in some ways for many, many more years that this uh, this isn't even necessarily the halfway point if you think about all the various elements that, that that may lie ahead. So I guess that begs the last question, concluding with this, you know, that you've been at it for four years already. Is You know, what's your view as to whether or not Pepita is well suited to deal with this? You know, so there have certainly been some suggestions that this is an attempt really to, to shoehorn in this provision within Pepita and that we would be better off with a more explicit uh, provision as part of some privacy reform that would sort of more clearly address the issue. I don't know that that removes the likelihood of litigation, but at least provides a bit more certainty. Where do you stand? Do you, is this something that you think we you can and, and well, you have little choice at this stage, continue to work with or uh, ought, ought to, should, should this issue really be dealt with more aggressively within the realm of privacy reform itself? So it's a good question. Uh, I hope my, my, I basically only ever heard anyone, anyone who, who expects or would like um, this search engine privacy delisting remedy to exist. I've only really heard people say at least that it, it should, or uh, that, legislative reform would be beneficial or sometimes people even say that it's that it's necessary which obviously I don't 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 agree with on the basis of having filed this complaint and I don't think I'm just being provocative but um, I think I, I I take a bit of the the opposite view and, and so of course in the abstract a well-crafted legislative framework 
would of course be better, especially in reducing uncertainty. And you know, with the the long, you know, perhaps decade long time frame we're looking at around this case, I, I'm the, I'd be the first to be happy to have it resolved much more quickly and much better. But I'm I'm also conscious of, about the reality that we're in right now. So you you've talked about uh, there's this new legislative bill that that may replace Pepita that's before uh, before Parliament, but seems to have stalled. So it seems like in practice things might not be going very far. But then even if it was to reboot and get going again. Uh, it doesn't actually, the, the bill as it stands now doesn't answer any of those questions. I mean, we could always try to try to push for amendments uh, in it, but for as far as, as far as it stands now, it's, it doesn't explicitly recognize, nor does it, it at all explicitly say that this remedy couldn't exist. So we're, we're stuck a bit at the same, in the same place. And, and that even, um, even if we were to achieve, you know, getting some more explicit language in there, the, the pitfall there is, I think, falling a bit into the situation that Quebec is in with the new privacy legislation that's before the National Assembly there, which I think thankfully does include a, right, a certain right to search engine privacy delisting. Uh, and I won't go into the details, but I, I have some a variety of concerns about the way it's been drafted. Uh, so you're, there's always a risk uh, of being careful or you know, being careful what you wish for. Uh, and so my perspective is that actually the, although it's, it's not one that many other people favor, that the European experience worked pretty well, where the courts, uh, you know, there was no enshrined explicit uh, right to private search engine privacy delisting when Google Spain happened. Uh, the courts recognized it out of the existing principle, legal principles that are basically the same legal principles we have in Canada under Pepita. And then things developed to the point where it became recognized and then it was codified in the law and things have continued to move forward there. So from my perspective, in practice, it actually might be better to, to, to take that European approach, at least as far as, you know, I wouldn't necessarily copy and paste the entire substance of search engine privacy de-enlisting law in Europe to Canada, but I think the process they went through uh, is one that's workable. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting perspective to take. You know, in many ways, Europe is serving as a model quite clearly across a number of issues, at least from a government perspective on some of these things. Although one of the things that is striking is that it seems that at times we spend less time grappling with the, the Canadian situation. There's a, there's a desire to say, hey, let's just use this model. It's certainly what we saw in C10. Uh, but at least this is one where I think there's even certainly more time spent in some of the issues certainly do cross over between the two jurisdictions. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. You know, Mark, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting issue and uh, it's one where you've been really at the front lines. I appreciate you taking the time both to come in and talk a bit about it and give us a sense of what may lie ahead. So, you know, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.